or a number of sections from uh, Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a, a sermon or a series of sermons Moses gave to the to Israel right on the cusp of going into the promised land where he is reminding them of their covenant with God, of God's covenant faithful, and a whole lot of warnings about the dangers of, of falling away from his law. Uh, so please stand for the reading of God's words, uh, starting in Deuteronomy 29, 1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on your feet and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 16, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which we passed, and you have seen the detestable things, their idols of wood and stone of silver and gold, which you were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of his sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be saved, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I can't handle two tasks at once, only one at a time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you and praise you for your covenant faithfulness to us. We pray, especially in this season, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, that our hearts will be overcome with wonder at you and what you have accomplished in spite of our reluctance and our resistance even to this day. We just thank you and we praise you. We pray that you would speak to you, to our hearts as we go to the gospel of Mark. Speak through Nick. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will turn with me, we're back in Mark chapter 8. We're in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 22. We're going to be reading to the first half of of verse 32a. And we just read something pretty curious. We just read Deuteronomy 29, Moses speaking to the people, reminding them how he had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And he said, notice verse 4, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand 
or eyes to see or ears to hear. Isn't that so familiar to the way that Jesus speaks? The way he speaks about people being able to comprehend and be able to grasp the reality of who Jesus is? I don't have my phone on me today, so I'm doing this for your sake. (laughs) But that's the way Jesus speaks. He speaks about God being the one who is showing himself and revealing himself to Israel and giving them some semblance, a sight of his glory, yet full comprehension is beyond their ability or capability because God had not given them the eyes to see it. You see, the spiritual blindness is such a prominent theme in Mark. And believe me, I wouldn't talk about the Holy Spirit uh, is effectual calling and our deadness in sin every week, or it feels like for me every week, if it didn't just come up in Mark over and over and over again. And what we saw last week was we saw the disciples in the boat again, not understanding Jesus again. And he says to them, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see, do you not see? And having ears to hear, do you not hear? They have eyes. They have ears. And yet there's this blindness that plagues them. And fortunately, what Jesus gives us in this text is a picture that this spiritual blindness, which is so ubiquitous throughout humanity, plaguing every single human being, is not a problem for the Lord Jesus Christ to solve. Let's read our text, starting in verse 22. And they came, that is the disciples in Jesus, to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes, or on his eyes, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up, or he regained his sight and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he said to him, sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes 
and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God. We confess that we need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might actually apprehend and grasp and get our minds around Jesus being the Christ and the Son of God and all the implications that it has on our lives. Lord, thank you for sending your Son. May we now worship him as we listen to your word. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You know, so far, the Gospel of Mark has been building up to this moment. Mark chapter 1, the very first sentence of the Gospel, said that Jesus Christ, this is this Gospel, this book, is the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the whole Gospel of Mark functions around this frame building up to this moment here where Peter calls Jesus the Christ. And then by the time we get to chapter 15, verse 39, we see the other, the second part of Mark's confession being confessed by the centurion soldier who was participating in crucifying Jesus, looking upon him saying, surely this man was the son of God. And what we have in this frame, in this whole buildup really here at verse 29 in Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, is we have a hinge upon which the whole gospel pivots around. Everything leading up to this moment has demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt Jesus's authority and Jesus's power. Did you notice even all the people recognize that? when they knew that Jesus was at least some kind of prophet, that's where they they have been building up to, getting uh, their minds around and grasping and seeing Jesus's power and his authority. But immediately after, verse 29, we have Jesus beginning to teach them about the Son of Man and how he must suffer and die and rise again. And the rest of his gospel is going to be explaining that reality, showing that Isaiah chapter 9, that he will be born upon whom the weight of the world will rest upon his shoulders, who will be called mighty God, wonderful counselor, that of this man is the same description coming later in Isaiah 53, when we're told that this Messiah will be despised and rejected and he will be crucified, his hands pierced. And we see the disciples here, we have this really strange pattern that's developed. We have in verse 20 or 17 through 21 that you see that the disciples do not have an apprehension. They don't understand. Then we have another strange healing that's going on. Peter coming to a conclusion seeming to have sight that Jesus is the Christ. 
And if you're familiar with this story, we know that the very next scene, the very next words that I left out was Peter taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. You see, if we're going to get our minds and see how this is a hinge of the gospel, see the importance of Peter's confession, we too need to ask ourselves, when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we see? Do we understand who he is? And understanding who he is, how does it possibly relate to the fact that Jesus is beginning to teach that he must suffer and die? Well, what we have here is first an illustration of a strange illustration, really, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, of a solution to blindness. And then we see Peter coming to this partial vision, this partial grasp and partial sight upon what Jesus is doing. And then we have perfectly clearly laid out for us, Jesus show us what it looks like to understand who he is and what he has come to do. We have this move through from blindness to partial sight to clarity that Jesus tells his disciples. And that's the movement that we're taking through this text. And that's actually the reason why we have this strange healing in verses 20 through 2 through 26. This healing where Jesus takes this man by the hand out of the village, he spits on his eyes and heals him. We've seen something like this before earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 7 when he did perform sign language for the deaf and mute man, sticking his hand in his ears and his, his hands on his tongue and spitting and touching his tongue. That was unique to Mark's gospel. And so is this moment unique to Mark's gospel. And the uniqueness of this story to the gospel of Mark shouldn't surprise us because we're already told in John chapter 20 that Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written down in this book. There are gospel, there are miracle accounts unique to the gospel of John, and there are miracle accounts that are unique to plenty of the different gospel accounts. All of them, just like John says, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing in his name may have life. But the uniqueness here of how Mark is doing, why it's here is the uniqueness and what he's trying to show as an illustration of the disciples and their need and his power to heal. This unique, this passage is not just unique to Mark's gospel, but this healing is unique in the sense that Jesus had to touch the man twice to heal them. Now, we've already seen that Jesus could heal someone by touching them, that sometimes it would be strange of sticking his hand in his ears or touching their tongue. He could heal the woman, he could heal people's sons and daughters by just speaking the word and never seeing them and never visiting them like the Syrophoenician woman. And just as it has been for all the accounts, the manner or the way that Jesus heals is for a particular purpose. He could heal any way he wants to, 
But the reason why he chooses a particular way to heal is to communicate something for that first blank. The healing is strange because it's not done in an instant. And it's also strange because of the purpose that he has it in, in this two-fold touching. But here the purpose, unlike the purpose in uh, Mark chapter 7, where he's touching the man, sticking his hands in his ears and touching his tongue, where he was trying to communicate to a deaf and mute man what he was about to do. Here, Jesus is communicating to his disciples what his healing is going to look like in them. In this man that is paraded out in front of them, taken aside in private company, Jesus treats this man as a living parable. Now, this man, it was a historical account. He actually received the benefits, but the manner in which he healed them, healed him rather, was for the disciples. They did not understand. They did not, as he quotes the Old Testament, have eyes to see. And what Mark says is, look at this blind man who's brought to Jesus. They want him to touch. They want Jesus to touch the man so that he might be healed. And immediately he does touch the man. He takes him by the hand. But he's not all of a sudden healed. He brings him out of the village. He spits his, on his eyes, lays his hands on him. And then he does something he does, hasn't done in any of the other miracles. And he doesn't do in any of the miracles. He asks the man a question. He says, do you see anything? And in this question, you see that Jesus probably did. He expected this man to not be fully healed. And the man opened his eyes, regained his sight. But he didn't see everything clearly. He sees men, but he sees them as looking like trees walking around. Now, this man probably had eyesight at some point in his life if he knew what trees looked like and what people looked like. But what this man saw was fuzzy. I actually, I had LASIK done this past summer. But before that, I woke up every morning seeing people walking around like trees. The outlines not there, being fuzzy, broken up, not being able to make out facial features. If I had negative 4.5 vision, he probably had negative 10. Seeing just tall blobs. He sees something, but he can't apprehend exactly what he's seeing. He thinks he sees people, but they look like trees walking around. It's like he was restored, and Jesus chose to restore him with cataract eyes. Eyes with a fuzzy filter, not being able to make out anything. And Jesus laid his hands on him again, and then he saw clearly. That should strike us as something strange. What is his purpose here? You know, when we speak of spiritual blindness, people not being able to see the reality of who Jesus is, we think of it as on or off switch. Either the lights are on, or the other, the lights are off. But the reality is, it's more like a dimmer. Yes, there is a distinction between believer and unbeliever. 
You either believe in Jesus Christ or you do not. There is that distinction between humanity that God makes when he gives someone a heart that believes on him. That is a point of difference. And we might think if you can see Jesus, if you can understand who he is, then why are the disciples so blind? It's because in this enacted parable that Jesus is doing for the disciples, he's giving them a picture of where they're at. They can see, but the picture is fuzzy. Jesus will be kind and patient throughout their life to take them by the hand, to lead them aside, and he will bring them to full sight of who he is. But now's not the time for them. You see, their vision is partial. And we see their partial vision in Peter's confession. Jesus went on in verse 27 with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, by the way, on the way is going to mark this whole next section that Jesus is getting into. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Jesus here, right after, right after his confession, he's going to continue on on this on-the-way mission to Jerusalem. On the way, he asked this, his disciples this summary question. Who do people say that I am? And they told them, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. You know, before we get too harsh on these people, look at what they saw when they saw Jesus. They saw him as not just a great teacher, not just as a moral philosopher, which is the way that a lot of people think about Jesus today. They recognized something about Jesus Christ that made him different. We tend to contrast the message of Jesus and the message of John the Baptist. But what the people saw when they saw Jesus was something in continuity with him. That he spoke in a similar manner, that he was in the same vein as John the Baptist. And even one of the great prophets. That when Jesus spoke, he spoke for God, to give God's word to them. Even the Pharisees admitted this, that no one could perform the signs that he did unless he was empowered by God himself. This is a sad thing about spiritual blindness. It's the same thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus. That almost, when it comes to blindness, doesn't count. Almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, or so I hear. Almost doesn't count. Why? Because when we think about Jesus... We're not talking about a man. We're not talking about a good way of life. What we're talking about is worship. God has been very clear throughout the entire Old Testament. God demands exclusive worship and devotion to him. That's as Robert said, is the big first priority of a Christian's life is one that's dedicated to the worship of God 
and of him alone. And if Jesus was just a man, this exalted thinking of him would be something impressive, would be something that this high estimation would be something that we could say, wow, that, that was good. You're all, almost there. But when we look at Jesus, this is not, he's not just some celebrity. We don't worship celebrities. We don't worship famous people. We don't worship even great people. Worship is something that belongs to God and to God alone. And coming to an understanding of who Jesus is needs to recognize this uniqueness. Well, that's the people. But Jesus turns it on the disciples. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. People saw Jesus's powerful authority, but what the disciples saw was his uniqueness. They didn't see John the Baptist or Elijah, maybe this preparatory figure who would be in a long line of prophets in line anticipating the coming of the King of Kings. What they saw when they saw Jesus was his unique role, that he's not just one in the line of many, but Jesus is in a league of his own. But here we don't have the full answer that Peter was when, said actually when he was there in Mark cha Matthew chapter 16, rather. We see that Jesus's full, or rather Peter's full confession was that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes into from that moment, and he talks about something that I would like to talk about if I was allowed to go on my hobby horses at this point. And I would tell you about the church and how Peter's confession of faith is the very foundation of what unites believers together. But what Mark is trying to focus on is not on the church and the reality of the church. Mark is trying to focus our attention on what the disciples truly grasped in this moment about who Jesus was, was that he was the anticipated and longed for king of kings. But you see, the problem with the disciples in this partial vision, the reason why it makes it partial is not because they grasp that he is the Christ. That's the right answer. The disciples have the right answer. This is the third blank in that second point. They have the right answer, but they have the wrong definition. That's the whole substance between the rebuke that Peter is going to receive. Peter's not rebuked because he recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. Peter is rebuked because he doesn't see that Christ, the one who we are anticipating, the government of the world resting upon his shoulders, he rejects the idea that that king must suffer. When we think about Jesus, I think even today, we're pretty okay with the idea that Jesus will have the government of the world on his shoulders. That he is involved, that he is in control, that he is the king of kings. We're probably okay with that. 
But what we're not okay with is the idea of Jesus being the suffering servant. That Jesus had to suffer and die on the cross in order to redeem humanity. What we're not okay with is that following Jesus means following a suffering Savior. We're not okay with that because also what that means for us, that we follow such a suffering Savior. What we have in the disciples is this partial vision, being able to see that Jesus is unique, that he is the Christ, but they don't really understand what that means. It's as if their vision is blurred. They see Jesus. God has given them eyes to see and to grasp the reality of that, but they don't see the fine, well-defined lines, the contrast in their vision that allows them to have clear perception. And they wouldn't have this clear perception until after the resurrection. When Peter in Acts chapter 4 says, when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. There is no, and then he says in verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the clear vision that we must come to. Jesus, that the power of Jesus Christ as the Messiah comes from that mission of suffering and rising again from the dead. And even in that confession that Peter says in Acts chapter 4, we see that exclusivity that is seen in those who have been given eyes to see. That the name of Jesus alone has been given to human beings that is believed upon by which we must be saved. We've went from spiritual blindness and Jesus really being the solution to that spiritual blindness. We've seen the partial vision. And I think we need to pause here just to say that this spiritual vision, when we're talking about the lights coming on and the switches being either turned on or off and that the light is like more like a dimmer of when God saves someone, when he gives them a new heart and regenerates them, that the dimness and where the analogy kind of fails is that the dimmer's not located on the light itself. The dimmer's located on our minds and our, ap- our ability to be able to grasp the reality of that light. Jesus is the light of the world who came into a world of darkness as we read in Isaiah chapter 9. The light is just as bright and just as shining for everyone. We've all read the Gospel of Mark up to up until this point, and the evidence is there that should be enough and should be sufficient to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. The reason why the disciples don't grasp it is not because the light isn't bright. It's not because the evidence isn't there. It's because 
the dim, dimmer switch, at least for the disciples, is tuned very low. And Jesus Christ, as he begins a work in someone, he will bring it to completion. That dimmer switch will be moved fully to the on position, but only in glory. Right now, for the Christian, even if, even if we have studied the Bible and gotten a sense of who God is, we, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we see as through a mirror dimly. What we need, dear Christian, is not just Jesus to save us in the beginning, not just to give us eyes to see his glory. What we need is that solution to our blindness every day. As a Christian, before glory comes, we need Jesus every day to be showing us more and more of himself. We need it through prayer and meditation on the scriptures. Look to the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see. That's why we pray that before so many sermons and so many scripture readings. It's because our eyes are not yet as clear as what they should be. Fundamental to the Christian life is one that is leaning on and relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ to increase our vision, to increase our apprehension of God's glory, of God's goodness. And we see in ourselves that we also too have this partial vision. What Jesus gives them in verse 31, and so many different sightseeing words have been used for. I think I can count about like 10 different sight words, different words for blindness and seeing that are included between verse 32 to 32a, 22 to 32a. Verse 31, it's at this point he charged them, or verse 30 rather, he charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise again from the dead. Why did Jesus tell them not to tell anyone that he's the Christ? It's the same reason why I'm not about to tell you about astrophysics. It's because I might be able to say that word. I might be able to give you a one-sentence summary of what it describes, but I don't know what it means. The disciples at this point learn that Jesus has power, has authority, but they don't know what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. They're in no position to share with others that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. For that, they will need to now learn who he is. They'll need to come to that understanding. Seeing clearly is seeing the plain truth that suffering is essential to the Messiah's mission. The plain truth is that suffering is essential to the Messiah's mission. And that's something that Jesus teaches plainly. You know, there's not anything else that is so plain in the New Testament that the essential core of what the Bible teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ 
is that it's summarized in his death and in his resurrection. And let me just pause about what that means the message of the Bible is. That means the message of the Bible, the good news of Christianity, is not that we are basically good people who just need some tweaking self-help advice in order that we might be better than we already are. That we just need Jesus to not give us eyes to see, but we just need Jesus to give us some marriage advice so that our marriages can be better. That Christianity is about giving us advice on how to raise our children so that they might walk in the ways of the Lord. Teach us to be better parents. Do things better. No, the heart of the message of Jesus Christ, of what he plainly taught the disciples over and over again, is that his message is summarized in his death and in his resurrection. That Jesus alone has come and he has died on the cross to save not good people, not people who need a little bit of help, to help dead people. People who are dead in their trespasses and sins. People who don't even want Jesus' help. People who don't merit or even deserve the salvation that Jesus is offering. When we hear the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, the backdrop of that is our neediness, our unworthiness, the fact that we are so depraved, so needing of salvation, so undeserving that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, had to become a man, had to live a life of misery, being rejected by others, and suffer a brutal death on the cross in order to save us. And that Fortunately, that the power of death could not contain him, that he did rise from the dead in order to pay for our sins. If I get off that message, I should not be a pastor any longer. That's the essential message of what makes the good news good news. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. You know, it's so clearly taught, and yet the disciples, as we read, immediately after where we're going to see next week, is despite Jesus's plain teaching, they're going to reject this message. Aren't we glad that Jesus is patient with us in his kindness, that when we start the Christian life, that he sticks with us, seeks to grow us, seeks to increase our minds, continues to reveal himself to us so that we might grow more and more into the image of Christ. And that proportional to this growth, the better we see Jesus Christ, the more our eyes are open to the reality of who he is. You know, we can kind of assess our partial vision. And before we get too despairing of it, we need to make sure that we realize that Jesus Christ is the only solution 
to all kinds of blindness. Blindness in our eyes will be dealt with one day as it was in this man, but also spiritual blindness. Only Jesus can give people eyes to see. And you know what? Jesus is perfectly able. Healing this blind man was not more difficult than all of his other miraculous healings. The reason why this man needed a second touch was not because blindness is so hard for Jesus to cure. He does it by a word and a simple touch later in Mark chapter 10. He does it in this manner to show his disciples something. What about our partial vision? I've already said that our partial vision is seen in the fact that we're on this side of glory. Well, I think I see this partial vision all the time in my own life. When I want to preach the gospel to someone, but I think, you know, gee, this person is older, stuck in his ways. If I argue with him, he's not going to change his mind. I think this way when I only think that the Holy Spirit's transformative power, the ability to change someone's mind is only reserved for those who are child, who are children, who are too naive to know better, that are like empty vessels where I can pour the truth into them. Sure, their minds will be changed. And maybe even at college, I can talk to a college student who is seeking after the truth, who's hungry to understand and search after the truth. I'm willing to talk to them. But why are we so unwilling to tell people that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died on the cross to save sinners? I think it's because we don't understand Jesus' power to save sinners. I think it's because we don't understand, we don't have a clear grasp that the person standing before us is no ordinary person. The person who stands before us is an immortal soul. Someone who will either spend eternity in heaven or in hell. That the person who stands before us, it doesn't mean that we can't joke and have fun, but it means that every person we talk to, if we're going to see them clearly for who they are, we need to realize that the people we joke with, the people we work with, the people who we do ordinary business with and wake up with, that that person is going to be either living in eternal torment or eternal joy forever in Christ. The good news, Romans chapter 10 says, blessed are the feet who bring good news to the world. Do we believe in the power of the gospel to change people's lives? If we are unwilling to talk to people who we think are too set in their ways or too hard-hearted towards the truth of God, if we don't share the gospel with them, that just shows our own blindness. It shows that we don't grasp the reality and the power of the Holy Spirit. What we all need, my friends, what we all need is to intently look at Jesus. We need His power in our life to give us eyes to see who he is, 
and hold out whatever we do see and whatever we do apprehend to others so that they too might see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us this clear sight of Jesus' power and authority. And this plain statement that the Son of Man and his main mission, his defining work, was that he came to suffer and die on the cross and then rise again. Our hope of heaven could not be more plain. Our hope of heaven resides in Jesus Christ and his ability to save us. And Lord, may we not be blind to his power to save others. May we not be blind to the, dem- to the demands that it has on our life. Demands not of weight, but of easy yoke of seeing that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners and he's the only Savior of sinners. And Lord, may you dispel us of a faulty belief that there's no use in arguing or debating with people because we couldn't possibly change their minds. Lord, we repent of such profound unbelief. And we also confess the partial truth that resides in that lie. The truth that we cannot save anyone. And that when we talk to people, it often feels like we're talking to a wall. A wall that does not want you and a wall that does not even seem to hear the words out of our mouth. Lord, may we... Always be faithful to preach Christ and him crucified because, not because we're able to convince people, but because the Holy Spirit is able to use the word of God and the truth that is found therein to change people, even if we never see the results. May you, Lord, grasp us, grasp us of the glory of Christ and to hold that glory out to others. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we're going to sing God's praises in the song that's found in your bulletin.
turn with me in your bulletins to the confession of faith. We're using the Apostles' Creed. Let's read it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you ever ask yourself, why we confess that faith together, it's because all these truths are what essential Christianity is. As believers, we all confess that Jesus Christ 
died. He was buried. He was born of a virgin. He rose again from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That the Holy Spirit brings us into communion with him. And by being in communion with him, we're in communion with one another. This is basic Christianity, which is what the table brings us to and who the table is for. Let me read Jesus's institution of this supper, which Paul describes. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Man, Jesus was really obsessed with talking about his own death and his own resurrection, isn't he? He's focused on it because that's why he came. Jesus Christ came and healed people, yes, but he didn't come to just heal people. He didn't come just to teach people. He came to die because that was the only way that we could make be made right with God and be restored to him. It's through that pathway that Jesus is, that connection that we have to the Son that restores us to the Father all by the power of the Spirit in our lives. And that's what we have in this. We have bread and we have wine, commemorating that event, which is so crucial for us to reflect on, remember, because that is the only way that we have salvation. And if you don't grasp that, if you're not baptized, not a part of a local Bible-believing church and not seeing that visible communion of saints, and you haven't made a profession of faith in him, understanding what it means that Jesus is the Christ who had to suffer and die, it's time to learn, not participate at this moment. And that's okay. If you are struggling to believe that, go to the only solution to your spiritual blindness, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us these elements, and we pray that you would use these elements to our spiritual nourishment as we recognize by faith in the faith in the substitution of Christ on the cross in the place of our sins, that he became sin who knew no sin, that he did that so that we might become the righteousness of God, and that this blood covers our sins and washes us as white as snow. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I invite the officers to help me distribute the supper. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, which I now do in his name.
This is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat, all of you. In a similar manner, Jesus took a cup at the Passover celebration where the blood of the lamb was poured out. And he took one of the cups and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he gave it to his disciples, which I now do in his name.
This is the blood of Christ, which was shed for you. Drink of it, all of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this supper that you've put before our eyes this picture that only Jesus keeps us. Only Jesus keeps opening our eyes to see you clearly, to see the Father as our Father, and the Holy Spirit being the source of our strength. Lord, we have some spiritual vision, but we need to be healed and sharpened. We need your ongoing work in our lives. We need that second touch of Jesus time and time again until glory. Lord, may you help us to give thanks to you for everything that you've done in us. As Paul said to the Ephesians that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, to believers, he prayed that he might give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Lord, we confess that we need your Holy Spirit to see these things. That without you, we are lost in our blindness. May you help us day by day as we continue to go to your word and have your spirit work on our hearts. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's respond to God inviting us to his table with joy. And we'll sing the doxology that's found on page six in your bulletin. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Lift up your heads and receive the Lord's good word to you. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. We do have just a few announcements uh, before I dismiss you to bagels and coffee. Please, if you're able, hang around. I'd love to get to know you. Love to answer any questions that you have about the sermon about what it looks like to join the church, what it looks like to become a Christian, and what it looks like if you have just questions about faith in general and growing in the knowledge of the Lord. We have elders at this church. We have uh, Steve, and we have Anthony, and we have Robert, who would love to also assist and help you to understand that as well. Uh, we do have a couple of announcements, though. Mike, you first in line. But, um, okay, so I have a small list. Um, 
there's a ladies' luncheon today. So if, if you're a man that is impacted by that luncheon and you're in danger of starving or <laughs> having gastric distress, um, circle up. There's a there's some of us that might go out to lunch and, and do that. If, uh, if you're a child that's impacted by that as well, make sure you bring an adult. Um, <laughs> Uh, quick reminder, quick reminder um, for the setup teams, uh, if you'll just clean out your stuff on the aisles, there's some tables around, just put your stuff up on the stage or over there and then go get your coffee. That way the setup team can, can move in and get the handles and the uh, the chairs done. Uh, Ben's going to talk about um, the setup teams. It's coming. Um, that's it. Oh, okay. There's a lot of stuff over there. It looks tempting. I want to touch a lot of it. I want to touch almost all of it, but you know, just, uh, I guess, uh, make sure you leave that stuff and set aside and don't um, fool with the stuff that's over there. It's like, uh, it's awesome that the school has done a great job of decorating for us for the holiday season, haven't they? So, praise God. Thank you. Real quick on the setup teams for starting next year. Uh, yellow sheet of paper is on the back table back there still. Uh, the teams have filled up very fast. I think I only have one section left on my team. So if you need to be on my team, get back there real quick. Uh, the rest of the deacons are listed as well. So once again, if you have not signed up, please do so. And the more groups that we have, the lighter weight it is, and it's spread out more evenly over everyone. Okay. Thank you very much. So even, even if, um, even if you just want to be a greeter, if you just want to be a greeter and you can't be here at 830, you can't lift the heavy chairs, that's cool. If you just want to be a greeter, write that down on the sheet or talk to a deacon and you'd be a greeter. If you just want to set up the communion, if you want to assemble some folks and just be the person that sets up the communion and make sure we, we have the supplies and sets up the communion, um, you, you know, get here about 930 in order to do that. And we'll take people to do that, too. Um, I remember when Jenny and I started visiting here years ago. Um, this was my first time coming to a place that worshiped in a school and we had to do all this setup stuff. I was used to just showing up and sitting down and going through the church. And a lot of times people would just leave. Evergreen is very different. You know, we, we came together and we did set up and um, that's how I got to know some of my brothers here at this church in the beginning. And, and it was great because, you know, we'd be setting up chairs and talking about how our week was, you know, what did y'all get into what was going on in your life and, and it was a great time for fellowship. That's how I met the most of you and had and got to know you. And it's been great. So sign up. We need people. Just real quick. Um, yeah, the ladies are going to get together today at around one o'clock at my house for a little luncheon and fellowship time. Um, if this is the first time you've heard about it, I'm really sorry. But I hope you can come if you can make it then please do. Um, don't worry about bringing anything. If you know if you didn't plan that ahead, far ahead, don't worry about it. Just please do join us and um, we'll meet at one o'clock or whenever we're done cleaning up here. I think I'm the last one. So <laughs> hallelujah, right? Woo, um, so I'm just here to remind you about next Saturday is the Powhatan Christmas Parade. So I have two shine up sheets in the back. Uh, one is for those who are willing to help come set up the booth, man the booth, tear the booth down. That's about a one to five commitment from a time perspective, okay? And then the other is, 
I need the masses on this one is for folks to sign up to be cookie makers, right? It's pretty simple. The way we're going to do it because of COVID is we're going to ask you to each make between two to three dozen cookies. If you make big cookies, you can do two dozen. If you do small cookies, you can do three. You're going to put two or three cookies in a Ziploc bag, all right? So when you bring the cookies to either my house on Thursday or Friday, or you can bring the cookies on Saturday right before the parade at one o'clock, just bring them in Ziploc bags, two to three to a bag, all right? If you have questions on any of that, just ping me on cell phone or email or any, or any of the Wilsons. They, they are all involved in this, all right? So for those that are coming, um, you don't, by the way, have to come to the parade. You can just literally drop the cookies off on Saturday, or you can drop them off at my house Thursday or Friday. If you're going to come to my house and drop them off, just text us so we know, so you don't see a naked child running through the house. <laughs> no nuts, okay? No nuts. So if you're thinking about making Buckeyes, nut brittles, nut rolls, go ahead and make them. Just put Kyle on the top, and then you can still drop them off at my house. I will gladly receive them in the name of the Lord. All right. That being said, uh, the after the parade, so parade's at 3, they they expect the parade to go to about 4, 4.30, and then right after that, they're going to do the lighting of the village Christmas tree or whatever from like 4.30 to 5. So we'll we'll keep the booth up through that process, and then once that's done, pretty much everybody goes home at that point because it's starting to get pretty dark. So if you've got questions, I got answers. Cool. Two set-up sheets in the back. And my daughter's going to come around and pester you all, too. Regardless of what Kyle said, I've got one more announcement. Um, just uh, just a uh, quick update on the church planting efforts. Um, I mentioned a week or so ago about praying for a house for the pastor and his family. That house has been found, and so it is available now. But thanks for your prayers on that. <clears throat> and this is not our last Sunday. Just I'll get that out of the way. Um, they will hopefully they're planning to move after Christmas. They're going to stay at Christmas uh, where they're at and then move probably sometime in early January. Um, and we're kind of shooting for first of February is kind of the, the somewhat, some sort of a launch of a church service Sunday morning. So anyway, I want to give you that, that kind of idea, general idea where we're headed. And thanks again for praying, continue to pray for us. I appreciate it. And please be praying for evergreen too. Uh, as we lose a very capable uh, elder at this church, be thinking about those nomination, elder nomination forms. I know it says December 6th to turn that in. It's more of just to put some fire, you know, in you to get it turned in. Uh, if you have someone that you would like to nominate, please write them their name down on that form, turn it in to either Steve, Robert, or I, and that'd be great. You're dismissed to coffee and bagels. <laughs>